Hello, my friends. It's Ryan from the Prolific Creator Podcast. Now, many of you have asked, hey, Ryan, how do I support the show? Well, I finally listened. Starting today, you can subscribe to the Prolific Creator Plus on ACAST Plus for $3 a month. That's less than a cup of coffee. No apps to download and listen wherever you get your podcasts. Get access to the entire archive of Prolific Creator Awesomeness. Over 160 episodes going back to 2017. Yes, that's right, my friends. A plethora of information and inspiration, tips, tricks, and interviews to get your art and work into the world. Remember those ads? Say bye, bye, bye. Wait, there's more. For $5 a month, you can get access to the full prolific creator experience. This includes the full archives, early access to episodes, listener Q&A, book and movie reviews, and interviews not for the public, and perhaps any other awesomeness I might do on the microphone. Sounds awesome, right? Yeah, it does, Ryan. If you want to listen for free, you'll notice the last 50 episodes or so will always be available wherever you listen to podcasts. Remember, by subscribing today, you don't have to download any new apps, and you can simply keep listening on the podcast platform you prefer. Cool. Okay. Cool. Thanks for your love and support in advance. Simply click on the link in the show notes or on my website, and it'll take you where you need to go. Now on to the show. The Prolific Writer Podcast, episode number 111, brought to you today by the Project Entertainment Network. We are so glad that you are here. And today I have on the show Adam Smith, and he is a Christian pulp fiction writer and also a nonfiction writer who happens to be a family therapist. And we have a lot of cool stuff to talk about today about the Christian market, what's good about it, what's terrible about it, how he's taking over the world in Christian fiction and pulp fiction. And I'm so glad that you are here. But first, some intro music. Welcome to the Prolific Writer Podcast, where speed's the name of the game. Follow an indie author and publisher and his guests as they share inspiration, tips, and advice on writing fast, writing often, and writing well, so you can do the same. Here's Ryan. Well, hello, everyone. This is your Prolific Writer Podcast host, Ryan J. Pelton. So glad that you are here today and so excited to share my conversation with Adam Smith. And if you happen to be a Christian or write in the Christian market or considering the Christian market or not considering the Christian market, maybe you're just a Christian that wants to write mainstream fiction or nonfiction. Uh, this is going to be a great conversation for us. Uh, we're going to dig deep into the good, the bad, the ugly of the Christian market and being a Christian in the world and, and how to tell good stories. And uh, And I'm really glad to uh, have had Adam on the show and share this conversation with you. And just want to give you just a quick little update before we jump into our interview is I've been kind of slowly methodically transitioning back into the pods and writing and all of that. If you've heard my story had kind of a crazy summer, a lot of family vacations. Uh, we moved to a new house, which is always a nightmare. Uh, I had hernia surgery to throw that in. So, you know, just a lot going on, a lot of recovery, a lot of getting back into our normal rhythms. And so I've uh, hopefully been able to uh, still get some good interviews out to you, maybe not as uh, regular as I'd like, but what I'm going to be doing this next month or two, and we'll see how this goes is I'm going to be doing a couple interviews each month that I have loaded up. And then I'm going to mix in some uh, Monday motivation, uh, or I should say motivation Mondays, 
uh, to share with you as well. And uh, that will keep us going and, uh, and go from there. So hopefully those uh, interviews that you've had this month and, or, and last month uh, are good and helpful. And uh, whether you're looking at marketing, whether you're figuring out what genre I should write in, whether you're just beginning, whether you're a seasoned veteran, I think there's something for you because we are dedicated to helping you write fast, often, and well. So uh, a couple things. Uh, if you uh, are new to the podcast and want to get on our VIP list, please check that out at theprolificwriter.net. That's always a great way to just stay informed on all the things that are coming out. Uh, we have some resources on the website as well, uh, some writing resources that are free, and uh, we also have some paid offerings that uh, will be available at some point. Uh, the We have a write a novel in 45 days course that is closed right now, but uh, that'll be open later. Uh, you can check all that out too. And also check out the uh, other podcasts on the project entertainment network. I think there's about 20 right now. So a lot of good stuff, all kinds of different topics and themes, uh, not just writing. Uh, most actually aren't about writing, but uh, stuff on faith stuff on pop culture. Uh, I think there's even a cooking show, all kinds of cool stuff. So check that on out. And if you want to become a Patreon, you can check that out as well. Um, and I think for as little as a buck a month, you can uh, get on the team of Project Entertainment Network and we'll send you some cool stuff. Uh, so you can check out all that. I'll put that all in the show notes. But without further ado, I'd like to get to my conversation with Adam Smith. Enjoy. <music> Welcome, everyone, to the Prolific Writer Podcast. It's your host, Ryan J. Pelton. So glad that you're here. And I'm so privileged today to have Adam Smith on the show. And Adam is a nonfiction, fiction writer, also a licensed family therapist. So we have a lot of interesting things to uh, talk about. And before we uh, jump into the show, Adam, tell our audience something that only your closest friends or family would know about you. Well, let me think about that. I like to write nonfiction, but it's not really my passion. My, my absolute passion is fiction. Uh, storytelling has been something I've loved my entire life, even when I was a little child. All right on. Well, you know, that's, a, I think, a common theme for a lot of uh, folks that I interview that do nonfiction. There's always that, oh, I really love fiction, but I, are we allowed to do that? And, um, and I love, partly why I want to ch chat with you is you're doing some really cool stuff with fiction. Um, and one of the things that, that drew me to you was a really cool idea that you're doing with Kickstarter, and it's a Christian pulp series. And uh, somebody told me about that, that you needed to, that I needed to check that out, and I had to check it out. Um, because it was so intriguing on a lot of levels, and we we chatted a little bit about that. Um, but but even the uh, the little blurb says, uh, "New heavy metal Christian pulp series, power armor and heavy weapons meet nuclear fallout and demonic apocalypse." So you you had me with that right there. So so tell us a little bit about the the uh, the Kickstarter project. I know it's already done, but but tell us a little bit kind of what what you were thinking, what you're doing, what you're working on there. So I love. I mean, I am a Christian, and uh, I love fiction, and those two things I thought should go together. But growing up, there wasn't much Christian fiction that really spoke much to me. It seems like most Christian fiction falls into uh, a couple categories. One is that they preach to the choir. Um, people who are going to buy the books are already believers, and then they just hammer you with messages, and it's just, it's just a thin story to kind of go along with that. It maybe isn't super entertaining, 
or they are designed to convert new believers so that you read this book and come out of it as a Christian, but non-believers are not going to read Christian fiction, so that seems like kind of a waste. And so, so what you're left with mostly is books that grandmothers are going to buy for teenagers and say, hey, I bought you this wonderful new book. It's supposed to be Christian. And the teenagers roll their eyes and throw it on a shelf and forget about it. And I think that is a sad state of affairs for Christian fiction to be in. Um, I'm not sure what causes that. There's, there is some excellent Christian fiction, but it's few and far between. It almost seems to me like, I don't know if maybe the people with talent gravitate toward the mainstream so that they can make more money. I don't know if it's purely a money thing. I don't know what it is, to be honest with you. Mm-hmm. But I decided I had to fix that. So I took oh. my love of gunfights and explosions and sword fights and action movies. I took that and I said, okay, I'm just going to write Christian fiction, heavy metal Christian fiction. And I said, I'm going to have to kind of figure out a weird kind of fun angle for that. So sort of post-apocalyptic America, I can make a little bit of social commentary without going over the top. Mm-hmm. Um, I don't know, something about a good gunfight that just gets you, <laughs> you know? Well, I like that. And I, I think, yeah, there's a lot of, uh, especially we've had some uh, Christian authors on here and talking about the market. And, mm-hmm. and, and I think there is, there's uh, things that, that they're not able to do, but maybe they want to do. So if you're, if you go over a certain line, you know, you're not, you're not Christian enough, or if you don't have certain themes, you're not Christian enough. And I've seen that in the Christian music industry too. It's like certain words you have to use in certain style. And, and so you don't have this freedom to kind of just create good art. Um, but I'm curious cause you're, I mean, people can't see you, uh, they'll only be able to hear your voice, but you know, you're a younger guy, but, but Pulp Fiction. So that's interesting because Pulp Fiction is, is old. It's, you know, thirties and forties and fifties. Yes. You know, the Pulp writers writing these great classic action, you know, uh, books, novels, you know, Conan, uh, the barbarian, all those, those great stories. So tell us a little bit kind of your foray into, into Pulp. How, how'd you kind of bridge those gaps and you know, you're too young for that. So tell me about that. You know, Conan the Barbarian is exactly my inspiration for these these Christian books I'm writing. Imagine him, but as a Christian, um, I'm part of I'm part of a collective kind of group of authors that they're trying to bring all the pulps back. They believe that we've got too far away from just good old fashioned action storytelling. It doesn't have to be mindless drivel, but get back to that instead of. Well, a lot of our movies nowadays, it's 90% hero is moping around and crying and having all these feelings. And then maybe there's one car chase scene. They said, now nah, let's, let's get back to the good stuff. Let's get back to, right. We make some of these movies, Die Hard, John Wick, Demolition Man. Some of those are again from the nineties, the eighties and nineties. We've got away from a lot of that compelling storytelling where you just, you're eating a gallon of popcorn as you're watching the flick or you can't put the book down because it's just so riveting and you don't know what, what, what's going to explode next. We've got to get back to that. And good old fashioned heroes, good versus evil. He picks up a sword and he stabs the evil guy. And it's, there's something, something primal about that in us humans that we respond well to that. A lot of fiction nowadays, um, how do I want to say this delicately? A lot of bookstores like Barnes & Noble are going bankrupt because it did go bankrupt and had to sell their company because modern fiction is not selling. And modern fiction is encouraging people to not write like the pulps wrote. Um, but the market shows that people want books that are about 70,000 words that are hot action stories that get right to the point. 
And that's, that's what is selling. That's what the market seems to indicate people want nowadays and people aren't getting that. So a lot of your best sellers, when you look at the best selling lists of actual sales numbers are from the eighties, the nineties prior to the last 10, 20 years. So it's time to bring the pulps back. That's the group I'm in is the pulp revolution. It's time to bring the pulps back again. Well, and, and I think you're, you're onto something. Cause I, you know, I was just listening to a, a conversation about this. Uh, I think it was on a podcast or something, but he was just talking about how he kind of shifted. He's a novel writer and how he'd write these very bloated books in like the eighties and the nineties and how he's kind of shifted away to kind of what you're saying, like getting to the point and kind of yeah. pulling away all the, the extra detail that's maybe not necessary or just kind of subplots that go, uh, you know, all over the place. I, I've always enjoyed the pulp kind of writers too. And even some guys that are still, um, you know, Lawrence Block, some crime writers that, that are they're kind of pulpy in, in a sense, like they get to the point, they can write a 30,000, 40,000 word novella or 50,000 word you know, short novel. And it just keeps you engaged, you know, the whole time. Right. Uh, you know, I, you know, I've tried to, I've tried to mimic a little bit of that too, because I think like for me, I'm a dad and I have four kids and, you know, I have, you know, I only have so much time to read and it's like, yeah, I'd love to read a Stephen King, a thousand word tome, but I just, it's just not going to be on the top of the list for those reasons. Well, it's um, going to take you a whole year and right. you're only going to, you're barely going to get through it. The action scenes will be few and far between that. That is exactly the market people are hitting now is people like you and me. I'm a father as well. I, I work two jobs. I probably work 65, 70 hours a week. Mm -hmm. I got two kids. I have a wife. I don't have time to pick up a 400,000 word book and then just get through it in the next year and a half. That's not right. going to be real fun. If I can pick up a book that's real thin and blast, you know, 50, 60,000 words and blast through it in a week or two when I've got spare time. Cool. And with, with these little gadgets, our phones playing our, our, we could, we, you know, you get 10 minutes in your office or on your 20 minutes on your lunch break, you can read a couple, you can read a chapter. Mm -hmm. People love short chapters. They love shorter stories and they love just, <clears throat> just punchy. So every time you pick it up, you're in a good passage. Mm -hmm. The big bloated books, you might be in a bad passage that's crawling and slow and miserable for a month. It might, you might be miserable reading for a month. It's not what the market's indicating anymore. Yeah, I've read, uh, did you hear about like James Patterson? He's writing some of these, uh, what are they called? Uh, he calls them like book shots. And they're, mm -hmm. you know, they're 100 page, 150 page books that people can read in you know, a couple hours. And I, I yeah. think really interesting from a guy who's, you know, obviously extremely prolific. Yeah. Um, but saying, Hey, people don't want to read my 400 page books anymore. You know, here's some right. short ones to get right get into the world. So I like the that. Ja the Japanese have been doing this for 20, 15, 20 years now, hmm. what they call light novels, which is about 150, 200 word, 150, 200 page stories. They have illustrations inside which appeal really good to men especially um you pick it up and and you know they'll put out 16 of them every every three four months you get another book which people really love you're not waiting two years between sequels or 10 years with george rr R. martin or whatever it might be you're waiting three four months for a book um and, and they'll do each one of the authors will do two or three series so every month you're getting one of their books and it's a nice short quick read the Japanese like have been doing that for a while. We're bringing that to America now and we're starting to say, Hey, yeah, I forgot about that. Didn't we do that a hundred years ago? Yeah. I've also enjoyed uh, some of these serial, you know, books, uh, serial novels that actually is an idea way back. I mean, I think, uh, 
yeah. who's the, uh, what's his name? Moby Dick um, did some serialized stuff. And mm-hmm. um, you know, some of those pulp, pulp writers, they wrote these serial books, you know, little in sections and magazines. And mm-hmm. I mean, I love that, that kind of, you're excited for the next, you know, part. Um, and I think that's really cool. Um, so Adam, let's, let's start in reverse just a little bit because uh, you know, obviously you came from somewhere and uh, you, know, you talked a little bit about, you know, writing nonfiction, obviously you're, you're, you know, a therapist as well and working other jobs, but mm-hmm. love storytelling. So tell us a little bit, kind of your, your early influences. I mean, what, what kind of got you into telling stories, writing stories, what books, what, you know, was it, you know, tell us about your home life a little bit too. Was there a lot of books and storytelling going on there? Give us a little bit about who you are. So I grew up in the central Valley of California, which once was nice farmland. Before that was desert, then it was irrigated, then it became farmland. Then it became bedroom communities for the Bay Area, and then it became crime cesspit, uh, meth capital of the United States, birth defect capital of the United States, uh, the worst air outside of Los Angeles. Um, So it was horrible, and we grew up very, very poor in a really rough neighborhood. Um, Gunshots, I mean, we'd, we'd be sitting and having conversation in the living room, and there'd be gunshots so loud we had to just be quiet because you couldn't talk over the gunshots. You just turn off the, turn off the lights, lay on the floor, hope nobody gets shot if they shoot through your windows. Um, so we grew up real poor and we couldn't afford much. We couldn't afford video games. We couldn't really afford uh, much cable TV or anything, but we could go to the library. Um, we had a very, very nice public library, beautiful library there. And my mom would take us and she said, right, reading was very, very important. She made sure we knew how to read, that we loved reading. So she'd take us and we'd, we'd go to the library. There'd be, it'd be lined with homeless people, some of them overdosing on drugs Some ambulances would pull up and take out the people who'd passed away. But we'd walk by them and we'd get into the library and it was just this whole new world. And I'd max out as many books as I could and I'd, I'd take them home and I'd just devour those pages as hard as I could. And I'd just sit in my room and just read and read and books. Storytelling was my life. Later on, I got old enough, um, See if we get a job. We got some video games then. Uh, gravitate toward role-playing game, RPGs like Final, uh, Final Fantasies, Chrono Trigger, that kind of stuff. Um, and storytelling in video games just blew my mind. It, it could be a visual storytelling um, in, in almost interactive format that way. Um, I mean, it should be an interactive format. Uh, movies, I, okay. I've never get been much of a movie guy. You know, I like some of the normal ones, uh, action movies mostly. But storytelling was just my thing. And one thing, one reason I got into therapy in the first place was I wanted to hear people's stories. And then their stories were, I don't know, I could see places where their stories just had gone wrong. And I'd help them fix those stories so they'd come out to the endings that they actually wanted instead of just these these awful endings that they didn't want. Maybe that's my perspective, I Mm -hmm. guess. No, I I think that's, you know, your your story is a very common tale. I mean, just people that you know, thing with books and public libraries and just, you know, they're so accessible and, you know, just getting that taste of, wow, this is a whole nother world and and what is possible. And, you know, I, I just remember that too, just walking through libraries, even in like my school library and just, you know, picking up a biography and be like, who are these people, you know, and just being so enamored by different people and fiction and you, you name it. Um, I think that's so important. I think in our day too, is just to, to kind of immerse people in, um, you know, stories and good stories and, and, you know, reading has, dropped off, I think with media too, and technology, but, um, but yeah, different kind of, like you said, different kind of storytelling, you know, video games and and whatnot. Um, and no, thanks for sharing that. And so, so tell us a little bit, kind of the, the progression of, you know, always a storyteller reading, you know, when were you kind of starting to write your first, 
you know, stories down and, and maybe even share those or not share those. Uh, yeah. High school, I, I kind of started writing a little bit in high school, but, and, and a little bit in college, but I, I just dropped away from it. It, it, it didn't grab me or maybe it was, I wasn't good at it. <laughs> I didn't have the discipline to sit and do it. I had all kinds of other stuff going on in my life. Um, you know, you're a young man, you think you can do everything and you want to travel. Um, I finally, eh, four and a half, five years ago, got in touch with people who were running their own little tiny self-publishing. They were doing their own tiny little books and they asked, um, they offered me the opportunity to write a book in their setting to help them out and build their little publishing and their setting at the same time. So I sat for three years and I, and I learned how to write. I studied guides on how to write. I obsessively figured out how to write a book while I was writing this book. Uh, my relationship with them ended up going belly up at, uh, about two and a half years in. So I swapped the book to my own setting and reinvented everything and continued. Finally published the book, three years for the first book, wrote two or three more books that have not even seen the light of day. Then I ended up getting uh, a dumb idea <laughs> in almost the middle of the night and I posted about it on social media. What if there's a guy who wants to eat a burrito, but he keeps getting interrupted by gunfights and explosions every time he tries to eat a burrito? And people, I, I went to bed thinking this is the dumbest idea in the world. And I woke up and people were blowing that message up all over social media saying, you have to write this book. One person um, disturbingly wrote to me and said they would name their firstborn child after me if I wrote that book. <laughs> so <laughs> I ran a Kickstarter. I said, if this is really a good idea, people will pay for it. It, uh, I don't remember, it doubled or triple funded. Um ended up writing that that is burrito avenger maxwell kane burrito avenger it's on amazon but that was my first real dive into the pulps of just a pure action story for the sake of being an action story um and i loved it and since then i've written a bunch more pulp books that i just i just love it well great so where um tell me a little bit kind of the the genesis of i mean you have some nonfiction out too so were those pre-fiction books i mean those are a few years ago um, then the fiction or kind of as you were, you were doing both at the same time? No, 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 no. I, I wrote, I spent three years working on one book. Okay. Then I wrote a couple books, wrote the other book. Um, this, those fiction books just came out. I just, I just wrote them less than a year ago. Okay. I wrote a marriage book, um, cause I'm a marriage therapist and I wrote a marriage book about the most common marriage problem that I see here in America, attachment issues and how to fix it. Um, because no one else had put out a guide like that. I didn't have information on how to teach my clients how to do that. So I just wrote a 25,000, a little 100 page pamphlet basically that I could throw at couples when they come into my office. They say, can we read anything? Usually the wife will ask that question. The husband's like, no, no books. <laughs> um, I can throw one little 100 page guide at them and say, all right, have this read by the time I see you next week. Just go read a hundred pages. You can get through that. It's little tiny book anyway. Um, and that took off, but the complaint I got was that that's great for couples, but what about all of us non-couple insecure people? So I wrote an extended guide, ripped out the pieces about being couples, wrote an extended guide for individuals. I think I wrote that over the course of a week. Both of those are written in about a week. They're, they're real short. They're, the purpose was to be short and be highly educational, written a punchy pulp style so people would actually want to read it that I could just throw at people in my office. And they ended up taking off pretty hard. So, mm -hmm. 
Well, great. So yeah, so tell us a little bit about that. So um, kind of getting into your first books, um, you know, wh- what was, I mean, what was the process? I mean, was it just, you know, do you have an outline? Do you have ideas? I mean, wh- what was kind of your uh, examples or things to lean on when you haven't really done this? Uh, you know, how, how did how did that go the first time? The first time I just came up with an idea and someone else had the setting and that was kind of an easy way to ease into it. Otherwise you get really overwhelmed designing your own setting and trying to be, you know, the next Tolkien with (laughs) with the Silmarillion to explain your setting. Um, That was, that was one thing, but honestly, I just, I just come up with ideas. I, I watch media, I watch other stories and I find things that are fun and interesting. And then I ask myself how I would put my own spin on it mm-hmm. um, for burrito Avenger. It was, I watched John wick. I thought it was great, but what if I added kind of a comedy piece to it? What if, and I had watched um, how I met your mother recently where they're trying to find the perfect burger. And every time that Robin tries to eat a burger, she's interrupted and they, they, knock the burger out of her hands and throw it on the plate. And I thought, what if I just combine those two people love that show? And that, that episode was great. People love John wick and those movies are great. What if I combine those two things? People will love that. And they did. Um, my Christian fiction, much the same. I love Christians. I love Christian movies, but they're just not pulpy enough and, and they don't, they don't punch enough. I love post-apocalyptic stuff. As long as it's done well, um, it's not dreary and miserable and nihilistic. What if I combine those two things and I'll throw in some Warhammer 40K with space Marines and big weapons. What if I combine those three things that people love? Well, it turns out people loved it. What I've found is if you can find things that people already love and combine them in a cool, interesting way, that's really where the money's at because you mm-hmm. grab both audiences and people already love those things. You don't have to convince them to love your fantasy world built from scratch where everyone speaks in colors and whatever it might be. You don't have to do all that extra work. The work is already done. I love that. So, so I wanted to kind of dive into that a little bit, uh, just kind of your style and, you know, with your Christian faith, cause you know, I'm a Christian too. And, and that has been, you know, probably our, maybe our bond over that is just cheesy Christian fiction that just doesn't speak to me. So some of the fiction I've written again, you know, there's some worldview things in there, but it's not what you'd call typical. Not everyone doesn't become a Christian at the end of the story and all that. Um, So, so tell us a little bit, kind of how do you, as a, as a Christian, how do you think about kind of pulp and Christian and gunfights and swords and, and all that? Like what makes it really Christian or what makes it unique or, you know, what are you trying to do? Is that conscious or just subconscious or that, that makes it kind of unique um, in, in that way? I don't set out to convince anyone to be a Christian with my book. I don't set out to preach to the choir and I don't set out to hammer people with a message. I took the Christian, if you want to call it the Christian mythos or whatever you want to call it. I took the Christian lore of our faith and I put it there and said, this is true. I'm not going to be apologetic. I'm not going to come in and say and give an atheist view of the world. And then they discover the Christian view. It is simply a Christian world. And we are simply accepting that. So the characters will believe that those things are true, but that doesn't mean that they're going to be good Christians. It doesn't mean that they don't have flaws. It doesn't mean they don't face hardships. A lot of Christian fiction Characters don't face hardships while maintaining their faith. They face hardships because they get away from their faith and the message is you just didn't believe hard enough. Mm -hmm. Um, 
my stories don't do that. My stories are they're they're nights. They are they're out on on the on the patrol. They're rescuing people from horrible things. There are people in the world who choose not to be Christian. They choose not to believe in it. Um, instead, they they choose the quick pathway. It's a demonic apocalypse. So there's demons walking the earth. There's demons giving people magical powers. There's demons people giving people wealth and and social power. And you can buy into that and take it if you want. If 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 you just don't believe, you can. Um, and they fight those people and they go out and they battle those people and it show they they get wear and tear. The knights experience wear and tear on their own souls through these endless battles. They have to aid each other, support each other. They have to get through it. It shows Christian men who are Christians, but they're suffering through that faith. They're suffering through what they have to do, what they have to see. Trauma. I put a lot of trauma and PTSD into it. Um, not in a drag drag the action kind of way, but. I mean, these are guys who have trauma. They are Christians with severe trauma, and those play off of each other. I try to pull people apart in those stories while staying true to that Christian faith. Um, so the answer isn't just, oh, hey, you know, some guy is struggling. They say, oh, hey, think about this Bible passage. That was great. Thanks. My problem is solved. Um, they have to face and endure and learn things. And as, those, as the story unfolds, perhaps their faith is healed, perhaps not. Mm -hmm. comes down to the character. That's more what I wanted to go for. Okay. No, I, I really like that. I think that that's, you know, that's a little bit of what has always been my pushback is that it, it always seems like it's always the happy ending. It's always, you know, the guy laying in the, I forget what Christian movie I was watching. That was the end, you know, he's laying in the rain and he becomes a Christian as he's dying. You know, right. that, that's like how every movie ends. Um, but to kind of allow for like, no real life, you know, um, you know, I've been a pastor for years too. And it's like, you know, the people I walk with, like there's doubt, there's fear, there's suffering. There's, it's not always a happy ending. And, and yeah, we still have hope obviously, but, um, but, I, but I like that. Cause I think that's real honest storytelling because that's how life is, whether you're a Christian or not. I mean, things don't always work out. And, right. and I, you know, I, I can't stand when it's always like, well, because they're Christians that, you know, they get all the, the money and the, and the healing and the, you know, and you go, that's crazy. Correct. Um, so no, I like that. Keep, keep doing that. I think that's a, a important uh, part, especially for Christian writers that are trying to say, you know, what does my faith look like? How does it inform what I do? You know, I, I like what C.S. Lewis says. He says, you know, that your first, you know, job is not to, you know, preach to people or moralize. It's really just to tell a good story, you know, that's and that's, right. that's gotta be where you start. And then, you know, the other things will come in as you're, you know, you're, cause, cause we can't not be who we are. I mean, it comes through in, in your worldview and that's just, you know, you can't shut that off, but um, no, I like that. So, um, so tell us a little bit. So you're, you're writing nonfiction fiction. Um, tell us a little bit about the process of kind of that first book where, you know, what did you do after, you know, it was done? I mean, did you send it to an editor? Did you, how'd you get it out there? What, what you know, what was kind of the process, the learning process of kind of getting that first thing, um, kind of into the world? Well, um, so I spent three years two and a half years really writing it. I spent about six months editing it. I did hire a professional editor. Um, he happens to be the one that I'm still with now. His name's Brian Nehemiah. I work with him. He, he edits every, every fiction book that I write. He edits for me. Great guy. Um, I hired him. I did beta readers. I did everything you're kind of supposed to do. Um, got good feedback, bad feedback from beta readers. I got a little bit of everything. Worked with Brian. He, it was our first book working together. So he hit me hard with the advice and he didn't really know my style and everything. So I had to filter. I had to learn to filter. What is my vision for this book? What is his vision for this book? And how does his pieces can work with my vision? I don't want to give up my vision of my book and just say, okay, he knows everything. 
that was a hard, that was a steep learning curve. I did consider using big publishers. I was very wary of that because I'd started off with a publisher and after the 2016 elections, they decided that, um, since I'm a Christian, I'm obviously not fit to be in healthcare because I'm dangerous to human beings just by being a Christian. They're going to try to start a campaign and get me fired from my job. Um, all kinds of good stuff. I wasn't allowed to communicate with them on the program we were using to share notes about their setting where they had offered to have me write in. That was now their safe space, things like this. Um, I resigned from their company, um, took my story and went elsewhere. And I have not been interested in using publishers ever since I've self-published on Amazon. The data shows that the majority of, of self-publishers who are making, or uh, the majority of authors who are making good money are doing it on Amazon. There are still some people over on traditional publishing who are making some good advanced pay, <laughs> things like that. Um, I know a guy personally who does that. He's a very good very good man. And he makes advance pay off of um, one of the big publishers, but by and large, you don't really want to go with them anymore. Um, one of my mentors, Nick Cole, wonderful author. He's my, he happens to be my favorite author in the world is Nick Cole. He wrote soda pop soldier, uh, legionnaire, things like this. Um, he used to be with Harper Collins and he was banned from them because one of the editors didn't like a piece of his story that she said personally offended her. So she demanded he changed it. And he said, well, no, that's part of the story. Stripped all his books off the market, tried to bury his career, destroy, tried to destroy him. He's come out as a very fierce advocate for indie publishing now. And then he's told me stories about big authors. He knows that the big publishers are ripping them off and have been ripping them off for years and they discover it. And now it's in six or seven figures that the, the companies have held back on and, and violated their contracts. They're stealing from the authors now. Um, Barnes and Noble is, is just about, it has been collapsing. They've been in the red for years and years and years. And the only way Barnes and Noble has stayed afloat is to sell their stores as real estate. So other people can open different companies. That's the only way Barnes and Noble has stayed in business is by selling off their own locations. Um, now they've been bought out. They're hoping that they can try to keep that up. But if they collapse, what's traditional publishing going to do at that point without that big bookstore? They're able to shove modern writing down people's throats. People don't want it, but they're able to sell it to the big bookstores because the big bookstores are run corporate instead of run locally. When you run locally, modern books are not selling anywhere, and those people are going bankrupt instead. Old stuff sells. So all of that is my way of saying I am a big advocate for indie publishing through Amazon. Um, I don't go through agents. I don't go through – because I've been told if you put your book with an agent, you expect it to just sit for two years, and you're not allowed to put it anywhere or do anything with it. You can't publish it. You can't do anything. You just let it sit for two years. That's not my style. Um, there's a big community on Facebook. I believe they're called 20 to 50, 20 to 5k, mm -hmm. 20 books to reach 50,000 or 20 books. You need to have 20 books published to reach $5,000 a month. That's what they're saying. Um, and, and they advocate for pumping out a book just about every month or every other month. If you can just writing, writing, writing short books, pump them out, get them published real quick. And then you'll be making 60 K a year. If you, once you get hit that 20 book mark, um, there are so many ways to do it. There's not just one. There are so many ways. I happen to use Kickstarter for mine because I need the extra money. Some people don't use Kickstarter. They have the extra funds, so they just put their books out there for themselves. There's benefits and drawbacks to both styles. The biggest thing that I tell people is networking within the author community. 
that is the thing that sells you books. Networking with authors. Networking, although networking outside of the author community, because all the authors are going to pump out their books to each other. Cool, their audiences, their email lists, their blogs, readers read those. But your biggest thing is to jump into your other circles of friends and say, hey, I'm an author. And they say, wow, we have one author in our group. That's great. And we're all, we're all economists. And we're going to pump your book out to everyone we know that, that, that has money already. And then you get in with whatever the else the groups might be. I'm in, I'm in psychology. Wow, no one in our therapy clinic is writing books. You're, you're, so then all the therapists and, and that network wants to blow you up for, and want you, wants you to succeed. Get involved in all your groups and cultivate those networks. That's how the money is made. And that's how you get, that's how you get your eyes on your books. Mm-hmm. No, that's really good. question? Yeah, no, no, that's really good. Because I, I think, you know, the heart of what everything you're saying is, yeah, just be wise. Because I think people see the, the shiny dollar, or they see the contract, or they see, oh, someone likes my book. And yes. I, I've just heard too many horror stories of, you know, people getting ripped off, like you're saying, and especially with agents and, you know, um, and, you know, I, 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 maybe you've read, you know, Dean Wesley Smith or, uh, some of these people and, and, uh, you know, he's been around for 40 years and his wife, Catherine, uh, Rush as well. And, and, uh, they would just tell you, you know, why they've gone indie, they were traditional for, you know, sold millions of books, but, uh, just because of that reason, agents and, and not getting paid and, you know, books just sitting around and they're like, we're pulp writers. Like we, we pump out books, you know, 10, 15 a year. It's like, we can't just sit around and wait for one book to get out there a year. Uh, so no, I think it's an exciting time. There's so, I mean, the indie community is so generous. I mean, for the most part, there's always bad seeds, but for the most part, they're willing to share and help and encourage them as part of why we started this podcast is just, there's so many great resources and people to, to tap into and ask for help and they're willing to help. So I think that's exciting. Um, you know, one question I had for, uh, for you, Adam was, uh, like me, you know, busy guy, family, couple jobs, a lot going on is what is your kind of writing routine look like? How do you find the time to be the master pulp writer that you are and, and get the words out? What does that look like for you these days? That's a really good question. Um, <laughs> dictation software is what made the difference for me. Okay. Dictation software on my phone. So I use dragon anywhere. It costs 1499 a month. I think, um, takes a little while for the software to pick up on your vocal patterns and you get a lot of garbled sentences at first, but it, it gets better and better as it kind of learns your vocal patterns, which is kind of creepy when you think about it. Mm-hmm. Um, I use that during my commute. So I, I have a 45 minute commute. I just throw it on. I kind of just talk while I'm driving. I could, I just hands free. I just keep my eyes on the road, but I just talk out loud. Um, maybe it's not the most brilliant glittering prose I've ever done in my life, but I clean that up in editing. Um, if I have a spare 20 minutes in my office, I whip out my dictation software. I, I plug out a couple, you know, 500 words in, in two, 20 minutes or something. If human voice can speak something like 125 to 150 words a minute, it's hard to type that many, but you can definitely speak that, especially once you get used to dictating. It's kind of like voice to text. It is voice to text. Um, that's what that's, that's been the game changer for me. So that I can get maybe... 10, 20,000 words done in a week, just on my commutes and just on spare minutes. Uh-huh. Um, so, you know, 20,000 words a week, pretty good for, for a work week. Right. And then Saturdays is just purely editing. I sit for 10 hours in front of my computer and I edit whatever I've got. I just edit, edit, edit. It takes me, I don't know, that way one day, one day a week takes me maybe a month or two to fully edit a book. Um, that seems to be working for me pretty good. And I can churn out books pretty quick that way. 
No, I like the dictation idea because it's, I think it's, the software is getting so much better. I remember like 15 years ago trying to do dictation. It was horrible, yeah. you know, and, and I think saving your hands, saving your back, I think, you know, doing the cracks of your life. I think someone said you can speak three times faster than you can type. And, uh, awesome. and, and yeah, and there'll be mistakes, but I mean, it's getting, it's getting a lot better. I, I do it not all the time, but, but I do try to work it in there and it's, man, it's amazing how much I use, I use Apple, but I have the Apple, yeah. Apple version, whatever it is. There you go. And it's, it's amazing how accurate it is. I mean, they, once it gets to kind of know you, what you said is creepy. It is creepy. Um, it, it does, it starts catching word, you know, words. And obviously if you're writing different kind of books, they, they still kind of mess up a lot of words, but, um, but yeah, it's, it, man, that, that is a great idea. I love that and on your commute, just kind of cranking out some words, 500 words here, a thousand words here. And mm -hmm. uh, yeah, it's not like you're going to keep everything, but you know, you'll, you'll get something down. Uh, who was it? Kevin J. Anderson. I think he purely does, you know, dictation now and he writes these yeah. huge tomes of, he just walks through the woods of Colorado and, <laughs> and speaks his sci-fi books into existence. So I love that. That is um, so awesome. Yeah. So, uh, so Adam, um, just as we kind of the back end of our interview, um, I always like to ask authors because they always have unique, uh, insight and things they like to share just for, for those that, you know, maybe they're just beginning to, to write or they've been writing for a while or what would just be some, some advice, some wisdom you'd say for, for anyone starting out, um, getting going with their writing career journey, whatever you want to call it. Um, what, what advice would you give them just as they, they kind of jump into this? Finish your first draft without editing it. Don't go back and edit. Don't worry about if it's crap. Don't worry about if it's terrible. It doesn't matter. Even if you change something and remove a character halfway through, do not go back and edit the first half. Finish your first draft 100% all the way through. Um, I just wrote a blog post about this recently. Our, our art form is different from other art, art forms. If you are a sculptor, you go to the store, you buy some clay, and then you go and shape the clay on your potter's wheel, if you're, if you're a potter. Um, if you're a sculptor, you buy the big slab of stone and you start carving into it. Um, if you're a painter, you buy the paints and you go to it. You, painters don't create, their, they don't mine the different art, the different pieces from the earth to get their paint and then mix the paint themselves and then go paint. Sculptors don't go out in the mountains and find the perfect piece of granite or marble and bring it back and start doing it. Potters don't create their own clay, don't harvest their own clay. That's not how that's done. They get their raw material provided to them so they can focus on their craft. We don't have that luxury. Your first draft is not you creating a book. Your first draft is creating the clay. It's creating the paint. It's picking out the big stone and mining it from the quarry and bringing it home. Your first draft is nothing more than raw material dumped on a page. That's why I don't mind dictation software where it looks terrible and once in a while I get a sentence, I don't even know what I was thinking there. It doesn't matter. That really doesn't matter because I need raw material on the page. Then what you do is you trust the process. You do an editing phase where you say what makes sense and what doesn't make sense. I'm going to just run through and edit the over story. I'm going to take out characters that I've dropped. I'm going to make the changes I was thinking about making. One editing pass. Second editing pass. Let's clean up the prose and the sentences so it's not just, you know, dog ran here, dog went there, dog sat down. Clean up the sentences so they're a little more varied. After that is more of like a grammar thing. Okay, now that I've got the hard work done, is my spelling all right? Is my punctuation good? Is all of that done? At three editing passes before you even hand it to your editor. That's, what, that's my usual process is three passes before my editor even sees it. 
I trust the process. You have to get that first draft done. The worst thing that new authors do is they try to edit as they go. And they, this is why most authors don't make it past their first, they don't even publish their first book. This is why is because they're trying so hard that when they're done writing, their book will be perfect. It won't even need editing. It'll Mm -hmm. be the most perfect book anyone's ever read. That kills you. Do not do that. Write the rough draft. Remember, it's a rough draft. Dump the clay on the table. That's all you're doing. Mm-hmm. No, I like that. I like that analogy of just the the raw material. You know, that, that and you have something to work with. You know, it's like if you don't ever put it on the page, you have nothing to work with. And I think that's that's the key, especially if you're just beginning. I think this is really great advice uh, because it's it's always in your head, or it's not perfect, or it's terrible, and it's like forget about that. Just you got to get you got to vomit something out because you got to have something to work with. No, that's that's really helpful, Adam. I really appreciate that. Uh, so tell us, I know you, you just did a Kickstarter not too long ago. Tell us what you're working on right now and then tell us where we can find you. Right now I'm working on the third book in this series, my Kickstarter over triple funded. So the first book, Gideon era, Knight of the blood cross, second book, um, Gideon era and the winter Valkyrie third book starts kind of a spinoff series. Um, Valkyrie doll and the Ashen brotherhood. That's what I'm writing right now. I've also got a fantasy trilogy that I've kind of got in the back burner. I've been working on the last year or so. I've got two and a half books written there. Hasn't seen the light of the day, but it's going to be like Japanese light novels. There are going to be illustrations on the inside, black and white. Um, it's going to be not Christian. It's going to be an alternate fantasy setting. Um, not Tolkien with elves and, and dwarves and stuff. It's totally different than that. But it's Stone Age hunters who happen to have magic. Um, so it's back in like, stone age before they had before they could even get crops going really mm-hmm. um but with giant weapons against giant monsters the size of skyscrapers so I like it. you, you can I tell like i go big i yeah, go big sounds fun so tell us uh where we can find your your books and find you i am places. on i'm on adamlanesmith.com which is my website uh, my author name is Adam Lane Smith because if you write books and your name is Adam Smith and someone puts Adam Smith in Amazon, they're going to get about 10,000 copies of a wealth of nations Yep. Um, <laughs> or people yeah, talking about a wealth of nations. You're, right, you're right. Married. So Adam Lane Smith, adamlanesmith.com. That's actually um, a true statement. I actually, when I Googled your name, that's what happened. I got a lot of <laughs> books on economics. So <laughs> that's all and on somewhere 19 pages down, you might find one of my books. Right, right. Well, I was laughing to myself because I'm like, Adam Smith, that's so common. Like, of course it's like his name is going to be the first one, you know, anyway. Oh, you got to, your name, what are you going to do? Um, well, Adam, this has been a, a privilege and uh, such a, a blessing. And thank you so much for coming on the show, sharing your insights, uh, sharing your work. Uh, I love your passion for writing and pulp and uh, Christian faith and bringing the, all those things together. I think that's great. And uh, all the best. And uh, thanks for coming on the show. Thanks for having me. It's been an honor. Well, there you have it. Prolific Writer Nation, Adam Smith. What a, a great, 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 great conversation. I, I just love Adam's honesty. Yeah, there's there's some things in the Christian world and Christian fiction market that are, uh, are are not great. And I think for whether you're Christian or not, the first goal of fiction, especially, is to tell a good story and write good stories. And however that comes out, however that's received, I don't think we need to be obsessed, consumed with markets, um, because then we just start writing to markets and not writing from from that honest, deep place. So I really appreciate Adam's perspective on that. Uh, just being able to tell honest, good stories and, and just tell stories he likes to tell and, and stuff he's been influenced by, like the pulps and action stories and, and, and find an audience that way. And, and you know what? There's 7 billion people on the planet. 
and you will find a niche. You will find a, a community of people that will like your work. And and I think the days of you know trying to reach everyone are, are kind of over. And I think it's the the key here is just to find find a community, find a, a people that, a group of people that like your stories, and, and whether that's fiction or nonfiction, and 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 go after that and do that well. Um, so thank you, Adam, for coming on the show. Check out Adam's stuff. I'll put his website on the, in the show notes. You can check that out. As I mentioned at the top of the show, if you'd like to support this show and the 20 other podcasts on the Project Entertainment Network, you can do that through Patreon. And I'll put that in the show notes as well. And I'll, as always, it really helps if you leave a, a rating or review on iTunes. It uh, helps us get the show out into the world, get more ears on the show. And, uh, and thank you for all the, all the kind reviews and comments and emails. Uh, I just love hearing from you. And if you want to write me and just say, Hey, tell me what's going on, what's going on in your world, what's going on in your writing. Love to hear from you. That's always the the best part of my week is to hear from you. Uh, and, and also if you have a guest that you have in mind and you want me to stalk them, follow them, find them and bring them on the show, please do that. And many of you have done that. And I, I've really enjoyed that because you've, you've, presented me with some great, great guests that I would, would have never found on my own. So, so thank you for that. Well, Hey, this is the prolific writer podcast, your host, Ryan J. Pelton. So glad that you stopped by another week. And I do have one thing to say before I go is get those words on the page and I'll talk to you real, real soon. Join us each Wednesday on the Mondo Method Podcast, brought to you by Project Entertainment Network. The Mondo Method Podcast features authors Armand Rosamilia and Chuck Buddha as they discuss the writing process from both the veteran and the novice perspectives. Each episode ends with a segment called Marketing Morsels, where expert publicist Aaron Sweet Almahari teaches everyone how to promote their work and sell more books. Check us out on the Mondo Method Podcast on Project Entertainment Network. This has been an exclusive presentation of the Project Entertainment Network. Have you tried finding tickets for any live event lately? It's impossible to keep up, and prices are crazy. That's why you have to check out Gold Star. Gold Star makes it easy to discover the best in live entertainment in your city with instant access to awesome events and special ticket deals. Concerts, live theater, comedy, dance, food fests, immersive experiences. You name it, Gold Star has access to special deals you won't find anywhere else with savings of 50% or more. Go to goldstar.com and use code DCPOD to save $10 on your first purchase. That's goldstar.com, code DCPOD to save $10.